Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 347 of Forgotten Classics, where we will continue with our adventures on New Texas in Lone Star Planet. First, though, I actually do have a new podcast to tell you about, or one that's new to me and has reconfigured itself to be essentially new. It's called Burnt Toast, B-U-R-N-T. It's from a website, Food52, and originally they did a lot of interviews with food people. I don't care about interviews with food people, so I never listened But when I was listening to Gastropod last week, and uh, I've mentioned Gastropod before, you check the sidebar for the links if you want those, they were mentioning that they've kind of changed the way they do things. So when I looked at it, they've got now 14, 15 minute segments about interesting tidbits of food history or little details that we might not know otherwise. So they call it perfect pieces of cocktail party fodder. And that's kind of the way it is. One story is talking about the Kit Kat jingle that almost didn't get made. Another one saying, why is there no pie emoji? Can you really season with sound? Meet the Rotobroil 400, which evidently has cult status, but people like me have never heard of it. So these are all really interesting bits of food trivia and the story behind them. For somebody like me, that's fascinating. So if you're somebody like me on that subject, give it a try. Burnt toast. Now let's get back to New Texas. The last episode, we listened to that trial and made the terrible discovery that you can kill people for political reasons. And if it's a good enough political reason, it's totally fine. Now we know why all the politicians carry six shooters, seem a bit wary, always have their hand near their gun, and poor Ambassador Silk is no different. He also discovered that the three Bonnie brothers who killed the previous Ambassador Cumshaw are going to come up for trial. So we have that to look forward to, as well as thinking about the Sagruff, is that how you say that name? Alien invasion that's threatening, that there was some wordplay around. Is it going to happen? And if so, how is it tied in with these elements? Well, we're going to find out a lot more today. We're doing three chapters, and then there are only two more after that. I told you it's a pretty short book, so be sure to pay attention. Now, come on, partners. Let's dive in. Lone Star Planet by H. Beam Piper and John J. McGuire. Read for you by Mark Douglas Nelson. This here LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The next morning, which was Saturday, I put Thromley in charge of the routine work of the embassy, but first instructed him to answer all inquiries about me, with the statement, literally true, that I was too immersed in work of clearing up matters left unfinished, after the death of the former ambassador, for any social activities. Then I called the Hickok Ranch in the west end of Sam Houston Continent, mentioning an invitation the colonel and his daughter had extended me, and told them I would be out to see them before noon that same day. 
With Hotty Ringo driving the car, I arrived about ten hundred, and was welcomed by Gail and her father, who had flown out the evening before, after the barbecue. Hotty, accompanied by a ranger and one of Hickok's ranch hands, all three disguised in shabby and grease-stained cast-offs borrowed at the ranch, and driving a dilapidated air-car from the ranch junkyard, were sent to visit the slum village of Bonneville. They spent all day there, posing as a trio of range tramps out of favor with the law. I spent the day with Gale, flying over the range, visiting Hickok's herd camps and slaughtering crews. It was a pleasant day, and I managed to make it constructive as well. Because of their huge size, they ran to a live weight of around fifteen tons, and their uncertain disposition, super-cows are not really domesticated. Each rancher owned the herds on his own land, chiefly by virtue of constant watchfulness over them. There were always a couple of helicopters hovering over each herd, with fast fighter-planes waiting on call, to come in and drop fire-bombs or stun-bombs in front of them, if they showed a disposition to wander too far. Naturally, things of this size could not be shipped live to the market. They were butchered on the range, and the meat hauled out in big copter trucks. Slaughtering was dangerous and exciting work. It was done with medium tanks mounting fifty-millimeter guns, usually working at the rear of the herd. Although a super-cow herd could change directions almost in a second, and the killing tanks would then find themselves in front of a stampede. I saw several such incidents. Once Gale and I had to dive in with our car and help turn such a stampede. We got back to the ranch house shortly before dinner. Gale went at once to change clothes. Colonel Hickok and I sat down together for a drink in his library, a beautiful room. I especially admired the walls panelled in plastic-hardened super-cow leather. "'What do you think of our planet now, Mr. Silk?' Colonel Hickok asked. "'Well, Colonel, your final message to the State was part of the briefing I received,' I replied. "'I must say that I agree with your opinions, especially with your opinion of local political practices. Politics is nothing here if not exciting and exacting.' You don't understand it, though. That was about half question and half statement. Particularly our custom of using politicians as clay pigeons. Well, it is rather unusual. Yes. The dryness in his tone was a paragraph of comment on my understatement. And it's fundamental to our system of government. You were out all afternoon with Gale. You saw how we have to handle the super-cow herds. Well, it is upon the fact that every rancher must have at his disposal a powerful force of aircraft and armor, easily convertible to military uses, that our political freedom rests. You see, our government is, in effect, an oligarchy of the big landowners and ranchers, who, in combination, have enough military power to overturn any planetary government overnight. And on the local level, it is a paternalistic feudalism. That's something that would have stood the hair of any twentieth-century liberal on end. And it gives us the freest government anywhere in the galaxy. There were a number of occasions, much less frequent now than formerly, 
when coalitions of big ranches combine their strength and marched on the planetary government to protect their rights from government encroachment. This sort of thing could only be resorted to in defense of some inherent right, and never to infringe on the rights of others, because in the latter case other armed coalitions would have arisen, as they did once or twice during the first three decades of new Texan history, to resist. So the right of armed intervention by the people when the government invaded or threatened their rights became an acknowledged part of our political system. And, this arises as a natural consequence, you can't give a man with five hundred employees and a force of tanks and aircraft the right to resist the government, then at the same time deny that right to a man who has only his own pistol or machete. I notice the President and the other officials have themselves surrounded by guards to protect them from individual attack," I said. Why doesn't the government, as such, protect itself with an army and air force large enough to resist any possible coalition of big ranchers? Because we won't let the government get that strong, the Colonel said forcefully. That's one of the basic premises. We have no standing army, only the new Texas Rangers, and the legislature won't authorize any standing army or appropriate funds to support one. Any member of the legislature who tried it would get what Austin Maverick got a couple weeks ago, or what Sam Saltkin got eight years ago when he proposed a law for the compulsory registration and licensing of firearms. The opposition to that tax scheme of Mavericks wasn't because of what it would cost the public in taxes, but from fear of what the government could do with the money after they got it. Keep a government poor and weak, and it's your servant. Let it get rich and powerful, and it's your master. We don't want any masters here on New Texas." But the President has a bodyguard, I noted. Casualty rate was too high. Hickok explained. Remember, the President's job is inherently impossible. He has to represent all the people. I thought that over, could see the illogical logic, but— How about your rancher oligarchy? He laughed. Son, if I started acting like a master around this ranch in the morning, they'd find my body in an irrigation ditch before sunset. Sure, if you have a real army, you can keep the men under your thumb. Use one regiment or division to put down mutiny in another. But when you have only five hundred men, all of whom know everybody else and all of them armed, you just act real considerate of them if you want to keep on living." Then would you say that the opposition to annexation comes from the people who are afraid that if New Texas enters the Solar League there will be League troops sent here, and this, this interesting system of ensuring government responsibility to the public would be brought to an end? Yes. If you can show the people of this planet that the League won't interfere with local political practices, you'll have a 99.95% majority in favor of annexation. We're too close to the Zisroth star cluster out here not to see the benefits of joining the Solar League. We left the Hickok Ranch on Sunday afternoon, and while Hottie guided our aircar back to New Austin, I had a little time to revise some of my ideas about New Texas. That is, I had time to think during those few moments 
when Hadi wasn't taking advantage of our diplomatic immunity to invent new air-ground traffic laws. My thoughts alternated between the pleasure of remembering Gale's gay company and the gloom of understanding the complete implications of the Colonel's clarifying lectures. Against the background of his remarks, I could find myself appreciating the Gopal Klung Natalenko reasoning. The only way to cut the Gordian knot was to have another Solar League ambassador killed. And whenever I could escape thinking about the fact that the next ambassador to be the clay pigeon was me, I found myself wondering if I wanted the League to take over. Annexation, yes. New Texas customs would be protected under a treaty of annexation. But the justified conquest urged by Machiavelli, Jr., no. I was still struggling with the problem when we reached the embassy about 1700. Everyone was there, including Stonehenge, who had returned two hours earlier with the good news that the fleet had moved into position only sixty light minutes off Capella Four. I had reached the point in my thinking where I had decided it was useless to keep Hoddy and Stonehenge apart, except as an exercise in mental agility. Inasmuch as my brain was already weightlifting, swinging from a flying trapeze to elusive flying rings, while doing triple somersaults and at the same time juggling seven Indian clubs, I skipped the whole matter. But I'm fairly certain that it was until then that Hottie had a chance to deliver his letter of credence to Stonehenge. After dinner, we gathered in my office for our coffee in a final conference before the opening of the trial the next morning. Stonehenge spoke first, looking around the table at everyone except me. No matter what happens, we have the fleet within call. Sir Rodney's been active picking up those Zisroff meteor mining boats. They no longer have a tight screen around the system. We do. I don't think that anyone, except us, knows that the fleet's where it is. No matter what happens, I thought glumly, and the phrase explained why he hadn't been able to look at me. "'Well, boss, I gave you my end of it coming in,' Hottie said. "'Want me to go over it again? All right. In Bonneville we found half a dozen people who could swear that Kettlebelly Sam Bonney was making preparation to protect those three brothers an hour before Ambassador Cumshaw was shot. The whole town soared than hell at Kettlebelly for antagonizing the Hickok outfit and getting the place shot up the way it was and we have witnesses that Kettlebelly was in some kind of deal with the Zasroff, too. The rangers gathered up eight of them, who can swear to the preparations and to the fact that Kettlebelly had Zasroff visitors on different occasions before the shooting. "'That's what we want,' Stonehenge said. "'Something that'll connect this murder with the Zasroff.' "'Well, wait till you hear what I've got,' Paris told him. In the first place, we traced the gun and the air car. The Bonnie brothers bought them both from Zasroff merchants, for ridiculously nominal prices. The merchant who sold the air car is normally in the dry goods business, and the one who sold the auto rifle runs a toy shop. In their whole lives, those three boys never had enough money among them to pay the list price of the gun, let alone the car. That is, not until a week before the murder. They got prosperous all of a sudden, I asked. Yes, 
two weeks before the shooting, Kettle Belly Sam's bank account got a sudden transfusion. Some anonymous benefactor deposited 250,000 pesos, about a hundred thousand dollars, to his credit. He drew out seventy-five thousand of it, and some of the money turned up again in the hands of Switchblade and Jack High and Turkey Buzzard. Then, a week before you landed here, he got another hundred thousand from the same anonymous source, and he drew out twenty thousand of that. We think that was the money that went to pay for the attempted knife-job on Hutchinson. Two days before the barbecue, the waiter deposited a thousand at the New Austin Packers and Shippers Trust. "'Can you get that introduced as evidence at the trial?' I asked. "'Sure. Kettlebelly banks at a town called Crooked Creek, about forty miles from Bonneville. We have witnesses from the bank.' I also got the dope on the line the Bonnie brothers are going to take at the trial. They have a lawyer, Clement A. Sidney, a member of what passes for the Socialist Party on this planet. The defense will take the line of full denial of everything. The Bonnies are just three poor but honest boys who are being framed by the corrupt tools of the big ranching interests." Hottie made an impolite noise. "'What do we got to worry about, then?' he demanded. "'They're a cinch for conviction.' I agree with that," Stonehenge said. If they tried to base their defense on political conviction and opposition by the Solar League, they might have a chance. This way, they haven't. All right, gentlemen, I said. I take it that we're agreed that we must all follow a single line of policy, and not work at cross-purposes to each other? They all agreed to that instantly, but with a questioning note in their voices. Well, then, I trust you all realize that we cannot, under any circumstances, allow those three brothers to be convicted in this court," I added. There was a moment of startled silence, while Hadi and Stonehenge and Peros and Thrombley were understanding what they had just heard. Then Stonehenge cleared his throat and said, "'Mr. Ambassador, I'm sure that you have some excellent reasons for that remarkable statement. But I must say, it was a really colossal error on somebody's part, I said, that this case was allowed to get to the court of political justice. It never should have. And if we take part in the prosecution, or allow those men to be convicted, we will establish a precedent to support the principle that a foreign ambassador is, on this planet, defined as a practicing local politician. I will invite you to digest that for a moment. A moment was all they needed. Thrombley was horrified and dithered incoherently. Stonehenge frowned and fidgeted with some papers in front of him. I could see several thoughts gathering behind his eyes, including, I was sure, a new view of his instructions from Klung. Even Hottie got at least part of it. Why, that means that anybody can bump off any diplomat he doesn't like, he began. That's only part of it, Mr. Ringo," Thromley told him. It also means that a diplomat, instead of being regarded as the representative of his own government, becomes, in effect, a functionary of the government of New Texas. Why, all sorts of complications could arise. It certainly would impair, shall we say, the principle of extraterritoriality of the embassies," Stonehenge picked it up. 
And it would practically destroy the principle of diplomatic immunity. My God! Hottie looked around nervously, as though he could already hear an army of new Texas rangers, each with a warrant for Hottie Ringo, battering at the gates. We'll have to do something, Gomez, the secretary of the embassy, said. I don't know what, Stonehenge said. The obvious solution would be, of course, to bring charges against those Bonnie boys on simple first-degree murder, which would be tried in an ordinary criminal court. But it's too late for that now. We wouldn't have time to prevent their being arraigned in this political justice court, and once a defendant is brought into court, on this planet, he cannot be brought into court again for the same act. Not the same crime, the same act. I had been thinking about this, and I was ready. Look, we must bring those Bonnie brothers to trial. It's the only effective way of demonstrating to the public the simple fact that Ambassador Cumshaw was murdered at the instigation of the Zasroff. We dare not allow them to be convicted in the court of political justice for the reasons already stated. And to maintain the prestige of the Solar League, we dare not allow them to go unpunished. We can have it one way, Paris said and maybe we can have it two ways. But I'm damned if I can see how we can have it all three ways." I wasn't surprised that he didn't see it. He hadn't the same urgency goading him which had forced me to find the answer. It wasn't an answer that I liked, but I was in the position where I had no choice. "'Well, here's what we have to do, gentlemen,' I began, and from the respectful way they regarded me, from the attention they were giving my words, I got a sudden thrill of pride. For the first time since my scrambled arrival, I was really Ambassador Stephen Silk. CHAPTER Eight. A couple of New Texas Ranger tanks met the embassy car, four blocks from the State House, and convoyed us into the central plaza where the barbecue had been held on the Friday afternoon that I had arrived on New Texas. There was almost as dense a crowd as the last time I had seen the place, but they were quieter, to the extent that there were no bands and no shooting, no cowbells or whistles. The barbecue pits were going again, however, and hawkers were pushing or propelling their little wagons about, vending sandwiches. I saw a half a dozen big twenty-foot teleview screens, apparently wired from the courtroom. As soon as the embassy car and its escorting tanks reached the plaza, an ovation broke out. I was cheered, with the high-pitched yippee of new Texans, and adjured and implored not to let them so-and-sos get away with it. There was a veritable army of rangers on guard at the doors of the courtroom. The only spectators being admitted to the courtroom seemed to be the prominent citizens with enough pull to secure passes. Inside, some of the spectators' benches had been removed to clear the front of the room. In the cleared space, there was one bulky shape under a cloth cover that seemed to be the air car, and another cloth-covered shape that looked like a fifty-millimeter dual-purpose gun. Smaller exhibits, including a twenty-millimeter auto-rifle, were piled on the friends of the court table. The prosecution table was already occupied. Colonel Hickok, who waved a greeting to me, three or four men who looked like well-to-do ranchers, 
and a delegation of lawyers. "'Samuel Goodham,' Paris beside me whispered, indicating a big, heavy-set man with white hair, dressed in a dark suit of the cut that had been fashionable on Terra seventy-five years ago. "'Best criminal lawyer on the planet. Hickok must have hired him.' There was quite a swarm at the center table, too. Some of them were ranchers, a couple in aggressively shabby work clothes, and there were several members of the diplomatic corps. I shook hands with them and gathered that they, like myself, were worried about the precedent that might be established by this trial. While I was introducing Hadi Ringo as my attaché extraordinary, which was no less than the truth, the defense party came in. There were only three lawyers, a little rodent-faced fellow, whom Paros pointed out as Clement Sidney, and two assistants. And, guarded by a ranger and a couple of court bailiffs, the three defendants, Switchblade Joe, Jack High Abe, and Turkey Buzzard Tom Bonney. There was probably a year or so age different from one to another, but they certainly had a common parentage. They all had pale eyes and narrow, loose-lipped faces. Subnormal and probably psychopathic, I thought. Jack High Abe had his left arm in a sling and his left shoulder in a plaster cast. The buzz of conversation among the spectators altered its tone subtly and took on a tone of hostility as they entered and seated themselves. The balcony seemed to be crowded with press representatives. Several telecast cameras and sound pickups had been rigged to cover the front of the room from various angles a feature that had been missing from the trial I had seen with Gale on Friday. Then the judges entered from a door behind the bench, which must have opened from a passageway under the plaza and the court was called to order. The President Judge was the same Nelson who had presided at the Waitley trial, and the first thing on the agenda seemed to be the selection of a new board of associate judges. Peros explained in a whisper that the board which had served on the previous trial would sit until that could be done. A slip of paper was drawn from a box and a name was called. A man sitting on one of the front rows of spectator seats got up and came forward. One of Sidney's assistants rummaged through a card file he had in front of him and handed a card to the chief of the defense. At once Sidney was on his feet. "'Challenge for cause!' he called out. This man is known to have declared, in conversation at the bar of the Silver Peso Saloon, here in New Austin, that these three boys, my clients, ought all to be hanged higher than Haman. Yes, I said that, the veneerman declared. I'll repeat it right here. All three of these murdering skunks ought to be hanged higher than your honor, Sidney almost screamed. If, after hearing this man's brazen declaration of bigoted class hatred against my clients, he is allowed to sit on that bench, Judge Nelson pounded with his gavel. You don't have to instruct me my judicial duties, Counselor, he said. The veneerman has obviously disqualified himself by giving evidence of prejudice. Next name. The next man was challenged. He was a retired packing-house operator in New Austin and had once expressed the opinion that Bonneville and everybody in it ought to be H-bombed off the face of New Texas. This Sidney seemed to have gotten the name of everybody likely to be called for court duty, and had something on each one of them, because he went on like that all morning. 
You know what I think, Stonehenge whispered to me, leaning over behind Peros. I think he's just stalling to keep the court in session until the Zasra fleet gets here. I wish we could get hold of one of those wristwatches. I can get you one before evening, Hottie offered, if you don't care what happens to the mutt what's wearing it. Better not, I decided. Might tip them off to what we suspect. And we don't really need one. Sir Rodney will have patrols out far enough to get warning in time. We took an hour at noon for lunch, and then it began again. By 1647, fifteen minutes before court should have adjourned, Judge Nelson ordered the bailiff to turn the clocks back to 1300. The clock was turned back again when it reached 1645. By this time, Clement Sidney was probably the most unpopular man on New Texas. Finally, Colonel Andrew J. Hickok rose to his feet. "'Your Honor, the present court is not obliged to retire from the bench until another court has been chosen, as they are now sitting as a court in being. I propose that the trial begin with the present court on the bench.' Sidney began yelling protests. Hottie Ringo pulled his neckerchief around under his left ear and held the ends above his head. Nana Debadian, the ambassador from Beta Cephas IV, drew his biggest knife and began trying the edge on a sheet of paper. "'Well, Your Honor, I certainly do not wish to act in an obstructionist manner. The defense agrees to accept the present court,' Sidney decided. "'Prosecution agrees to accept the present court,' Goodham parroted. The present court will continue on the bench to try the case of the friends of Silas Cumshaw, deceased, versus Switchblade Joe Bonney, Jack Ha A. Bonney, Turkey Buzzer Tom Bonney et al.'s, Judge Nelson rapped with his gavel. Court is herewith adjourned until 0900 tomorrow. Chapter 9 The trial got started the next morning with a minimal amount of objections from Sidney. The charges and specifications were duly read, the three defendants pleaded not guilty, and then Goodham advanced with a paper in his hand to address the court. Sidney scampered up to take his position beside him. "'Your Honor, the prosecution wishes, subject to agreement of the defense, to enter the following stipulations. To wit, first, that the late Silas Cumshaw was a practicing politician within the meaning of the law. Second, that he is now dead, and came to his death in the manner attested to by the coroner of Sam Houston Continent. Third, that he came to his death at the hands of the defendants here present. In all my planning I had forgotten that. I couldn't let those stipulations stand without protest, and at the same time, if I protested the characterization of Cumshaw as a practicing politician, the trial could easily end right there. So I prayed for a miracle, and Clement Sidney promptly obliged me. "'Defense won't stipulate anything,' he barked. "'My clients here are victims of a monstrous conspiracy, a conspiracy to conceal the true facts of the death of Silas Cumshaw. They ought never to have been arrested or brought here, and if the prosecution wants to establish anything, they can do it by testimony, in the regular and lawful way.' 
this practice of free wheeling stipulation is only one of the many devices by which the courts of this planet are being perverted to serve the corrupt and unjust ends of a gang of reactionary landowners. Judge Nelson's gavel hit the bench with a crack like a rifle shot. Mr. Sidney, in justice to your clients, I would hate to force them to change lawyers in the middle of their trial. But if I hear another remark like that about the courts of New Texas, that's exactly what will happen, because you'll be in jail for contempt. Is that clear, Mr. Sidney? I settled back with a deep sigh of relief, which got me, I noticed, curious stares from my fellow ambassadors. I disregarded the questions in their glances. I had what I wanted. They began calling up the witnesses. First, the doctor who had certified Ambassador Cumshaw's death. He gave a concise description of the wounds which had killed my predecessor. Sidney was trying to make something out of the fact that he was Hickok's family physician, and consuming more time when I got up. "'Your Honor, I am present here as amicus curiae, because of the obvious interest which the government of the Solar League has in this case.' "'Objection!' Sidney yelled. "'Please state it,' Nelson invited. "'This is a court of the people of the planet of New Texas. This foreign emissary of the Solar League, sent here to conspire with the New Texan traitors, to the end that New Texas shall be reduced to a supine and ravished satrapy of the all-devouring empire of the galaxy,' Judge Nelson rapped sharply. Friends of the court are defined as persons having a proper interest in the case. As this case arises from the death of the former ambassador of the Solar League, I cannot see how the present ambassador and his staff can be excluded. Overruled. He nodded to me. Continue, Mr. Ambassador. As I understand, I have the same rights of cross-examination of witnesses as counsel for the prosecution and defense. Is that correct, Your Honor? It was, so I turned to the witness. I suppose, doctor, that you have had quite a bit of experience in your practice with gunshot wounds? He chuckled. Mr. Ambassador, it is gunshot wound cases which keep the practice of medicine and surgery alive on this planet. Yes, I definitely have. Now, you say that the deceased was hit by six different projectiles, right shoulder almost completely severed, right lung and right ribs blown out of the chest, spleen and kidney so intermingled as to be practically one, and left leg severed by complete shattering of the left pelvis and hip joint? That's right. I picked up the twenty-millimeter auto-rifle, it weighed a good sixty pounds from the table, and asked him if this weapon could have inflicted such wounds. He agreed that it both could and had. This is the usual type of weapon used in your New Texas political liquidations? I asked. Certainly not. The usual weapons are pistols, sometimes a hunting rifle or a shotgun. I asked the same question when I cross-examined the ballistics witness. Is this the usual type of weapon used in your New Texas political liquidations? No, not at all. That's a very expensive weapon, Mr. Ambassador wasn't even manufactured on this planet, made by the Zisroff Star Cluster. A weapon like that sells for five, six hundred pesos. 
It's used for shooting really big game, super-mastodon and things like that, and, of course, for combat. It seems, I remarked, that the defense is overlooking an obvious point here. I doubt if these three defendants ever, in all their lives, had among them the price of such a weapon. That, of course, brought Sidney to his feet, sputtering objections to this attempt to disparage the honest poverty of his clients, which only helped to call attention to the point. Then the prosecution called in a witness named David Crockett Longfellow. I'd met him at the Hickok Ranch. He was Hickok's butler. He limped from an old injury which had retired him from work on the range. He was sworn in and testified to his name and occupation. "'Do you know these three defendants?' Goodham asked him. "'Yeah. I even marked one of them for future identification,' Longfellow replied. Sidney was up at once, shouting objections. After he was quieted down, Goodham remarked that he'd come to that point later, and began a line of questioning to establish that Longfellow had been on the Hickok Ranch on the day when Silas Cumshaw was killed. "'Now,' Goodham said, "'will you relate to the court the matters of interest which came to your personal observation on that day?' Longfellow began his story. At about o nine hundred, I was dusting up and straightening things in the library while the colonel was at his desk. All of a sudden, he said to me, "Davy, suppose you call the solar embassy and see if Mr. Cumshaw is doing anything today. If he isn't, ask him if he wants to come out." I was working right beside the telescreen, so I called the Solar League embassy. Mr. Thromley took the call, and I asked him was Mr. Cumshaw round. By this time the colonel got through with what he was doing at the desk and came over to the screen. I went back to my work, but I heard the colonel asking Mr. Cumshaw could he come out for the day, and Mr. Cumshaw saying yes he could, he'd be out by about ten-thirty. Well, long about ten-thirty, his air-car came in and landed on the drive little single-seat job that he drove himself. He'd landed it about a hundred feet from the outside veranda, like he usually did, and got out. Then this other car came dropping in from out of nowhere. I didn't pay it much attention, thought it might be one of the other ambassadors that Mr. Cumshaw brung along. But Mr. Cumshaw turned around and looked at it, and then he started to run for the veranda. I was standing in the doorway when I seen him starting to run. I jumped out on the porch, quick-like, and pulled my gun, and then this auto-rifle begun firing out of the other car. There was only eight or ten shots fired from this car, but most of them hit Mr. Cumshaw. Goodham waited a few moments. Longfellow's voice had choked, and there was a twitching about his face, as though he were trying to suppress tears. Now, Mr. Longfellow, Goodham said, did you recognize the people who were in the car from which the shots came? Yeah, like I said, I cut a mark on one of them. That one there, Jack High A. Bonnie. He was handling the gun, and from where I was, he had his left side to me. I was trying for his head, but I always overshoot, so I have the habit of holding low. This time I held too low. 
He looked at Jack High in coldly poisonous hatred. I'll be sorry about that as long as I live. And who else was in the car? The other two curs out of the same litter, switchblade and turkey buzzard, over there. Further questioning revealed that Longfellow had had no direct knowledge of the pursuit or the siege of the jail in Bonneville. Colonel Hickok had taken personal command of that and had left Longfellow behind to call the Solar League Embassy and the Rangers. He had made no attempt to move the body, but had left it lying in the driveway until the doctor and the rangers arrived. Goodham went to the middle table and picked up a heavy automatic pistol. I call the court's attention to this pistol. It's an eleven-millimeter automatic manufactured by the Colt Firearms Company of New Texas, a licensed subsidiary of the Colt Firearms Company of Terra. He handed it to Longfellow. Do you know this pistol? he asked. Longfellow was almost insulted by the question. Of course he knew his own pistol. He recited the serial number and pointed to the different scars and scratches on the weapon, telling how they had been acquired. "'The court accepts that Mr. Longfellow knows his own weapon,' Nelson said. "'I assume that this is the weapon with which you claim to have shot Jack High a Bonnie?' "'It was, although Longfellow resented the qualification.' "'That's all. Your witness, Mr. Sidney,' Goodham said. Sidney began an immediate attack. Questioning Longfellow's eyesight, intelligence, honesty, and integrity, he tried to show personal enmity toward the Bonnies. He implied that Longfellow had been conspiring with Cumshaw to bring about the conquest of New Texas by the Solar League. The verbal exchange became so heated that both witness and attorney had to be admonished repeatedly from the bench. But at no point did Sidney shake Longfellow from his one fundamental statement, that the Bonnie brothers had shot Silas Cumshaw, and that he had shot Jack High A. Bonnie in the shoulder. When he was finished, I got up and took over. Mr. Longfellow, you say that Mr. Thrombley answered the screen at the Solar League Embassy, I began. You know Mr. Thrombley? Sure, Mr. Silk. He's been out at the ranch with Mr. Cumshaw a lot of times. Well, beside yourself and Colonel Hickok and Mr. Cumshaw, and possibly Mr. Thrombley, who else knew that Mr. Cumshaw would be at the ranch at ten-thirty on that morning? Nobody. But the air-car had obviously been waiting for Mr. Cumshaw. The Bonnies must have had advanced knowledge. My questions made that point clear despite the obvious, and reluctantly court-sustained, objections from Mr. Sidney. That would be all, Mr. Longfellow. Thank you. Any questions from anybody else? There being none, Longfellow stepped down. It was then a few minutes before noon, so Judge Nelson recessed court for an hour and a half. In the afternoon, the surgeon who had treated Jack High Abe Bonnie's wounded shoulder testified identifying the bullet which had been extracted from Bonnie's shoulder. A ballistics man from Ranger Crime Lab followed him to the stand and testified that it had been fired from Longfellow's Colt. Then Ranger Captain Nelson took the stand. His testimony was about what he had given me at the Embassy, with the exception that the Bonnie's admission that they had shot Ambassador Cumshaw was ruled out as having been made under duress. However, Captain Nelson's testimony didn't need the confessions. 
The cover was stripped off the aircar, and a couple of men with a power dolly dragged it out in front of the bench. The ranger captain identified it as the car which he had found at the Bonneville jail. He went over it with an ultraviolet flashlight and showed where he had written his name and the date on it with fluorescent ink. The effects of the A.A. fire were plainly evident on it. Then the other shrouded object was unveiled and identified as the gun which had disabled the aircar. Colonel Hickok identified the gun as the one with which he had fired on the aircar. Finally, the ballistics expert was brought back to the stand again to link the two by means of fragments found in the car. Then Goodham brought kettlebelly Sam Bonney to the stand. The mayor of Bonneville was a man of fifty or so, short, partially bald, dressed in faded blue Levi's, a frayed white shirt, and a grease-spotted vest. There was absolutely no mystery about how he had acquired his nickname. He disgorged a cut of tobacco into a spittoon, took the oath with unctuous solemnity, then reloaded himself with another chew, and told his version of the attack on the jail. At about ten-forty-five on the day in question, he testified, he had been in his office hard at work in the public service, when an air-car, partially disabled by gunfire, had landed in the street outside and the three defendants had rushed in, claiming sanctuary. From then on, the story flowed along smoothly, following the lines predicted by Captain Nelson and Peros. Of course, he had given the fugitive shelter. They had claimed to have been near to a political assassination and were in fear of their lives. Under Sidney's cross-examination, and coaching, he poured out the story of Bonneville's wrongs at the hands of the reactionary landowners, and the atrocious behavior of the Hickok goon gang. Finally, after extracting the last drop of class-hatred venom out of him, Sidney turned him over to me. "'How many men were inside the jail when the three defendants were claiming sanctuary?' I asked. He couldn't rightly say, maybe four or five. "'Closer twenty-five, according to the rangers. How many of them were prisoners in the jail?' "'Well, none. The prisoners was all turned out that morning.' They was just common drunks, disorderly conduct cases, that kind of thing. We turned them out so's we could make some repairs. You turned them out because you expected to have to defend the jail, because you knew in advance that these three would be along claiming sanctuary, and that Colonel Hickok's ranch hands would be right on their heels, didn't you? I demanded. It took a good five minutes before Sidney stopped shouting long enough for Judge Nelson to sustain the objection. You knew these young men all their lives, I take it. What did you know about their financial circumstances, for instance? Well, they've been ground down and kept poor by the big ranchers and the money guys. Then weren't you surprised to see them driving such an expensive air-car? I didn't know as it's such an expensive— he shut his mouth suddenly. "'You know where they got the money to buy that car?' I pressed. Kettlebelly Sam didn't answer. "'From the man who paid them to murder Ambassador Silas Cumshaw?' I kept pressing. "'Do you know how much they were paid for that job? Do you know where the money came from? Do you know who the go-between was, and how much he got, and how much he kept for himself?' Was it the same source that paid for that recent attempt on President Hutchinson's life? I refuse to answer, the witness declared, 
trying to shove his chest out about half as far as his midriff. "'On the grounds that it might incriminate or degrade me.' "'You can't degrade a bunny,' a voice from the balcony put in. "'So then,' I replied to the voice, "'what he means is, incriminate,' I turned to the witness. "'That will be all. Excused.' As Bonnie left the stand and was led out the side door, Goodham addressed the bench. "'Now, Your Honor,' he said, "'I believe that the prosecution has succeeded in definitely establishing that these three defendants actually did fire the shot which, on April 22, 2193, deprived Silas Cumshaw of his life. We will now undertake to prove—' Followed a long succession of witnesses each testifying to some public or private act of philanthropy, some noble trait of character. It was the sort of thing which the defense lawyer in the Waitley case had been so willing to stipulate. Sidney, of course, tried to make it all out to be part of a sinister conspiracy to establish a Solar League fifth column on New Texas. Finally, the prosecution rested its case. I entertained Gail and her father at the embassy that evening. The street outside was crowded with new Texans, all of them on our side, shouting slogans like, "'Death to the Bonnies!' and "'Vengeance for Cumshaw!' and "'Annexation Now!' Some of it was entirely spontaneous, too. The Hickocks, father and daughter, were given a tremendous ovation when they finally left, and followed to their hotel by cheering crowds. I saw one big banner lettered, don't let New Texas go to the dogs, and bearing a crude picture of a Zasroff. I seem to recall having seen a couple of our Marines making that banner the evening before in the embassy patio, but 